Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. If you're like me, maybe a few times during this pandemic, maybe the whole time during this pandemic, you might have turned to food to get some comfort when all the other things that bring us joy, or at least a lot of them, have been stripped away from us. At the beginning of the pandemic, at the beginning of lockdown, people joked about the COVID-1919, the pounds we put on because of this habit. Well, almost a year later, a lot of us are still experiencing pretty significant restrictions to the things we can do with our lives. But there also seems to have been a trend to focus in on our health, to take a look at the habits that might be making us sick. And so I thought this would be a good time to revisit something that we've talked about on this show before, which pertains to diets. We talked to Tracy Mann to learn why almost all diets ultimately fail. We learned some bizarre facts like the fact that exercise is actually not really an effective way of losing weight, that it comes down to restricting what you eat. So as I looked around for an expert to talk to, I wanted to hear from someone who could explain this phenomenon. And also, why it is that counting calories doesn't always work. I mean, it should, right? It's just logical. If you eat more calories than you burn, then ultimately you should be putting on weight. And if you eat fewer, you should be able to lose it. But that doesn't seem to be true for many of us. There's also this idea that your weight is largely set by your genes. So the person that I wanted to talk to is a professor of genetic epidemiology, Tim Spector is a professor at King's College London, and in particular, he uses a large twins registry of about 10,000 twins in the UK to get a sense of what aspects of our behavior are really tied to our genes and how that might affect our metabolism and so on, as well as many other questions about genetic epidemiology. Over the past year, he's actually used a lot of his resources to help people understand COVID better. But before then, he was really interested in the gut microbiome and how our genes might affect the kinds of bacteria that colonize our gut and how that ultimately might affect how our diet might be helping or hurting us. He has a new book out called Spoon Fed, Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food Is Wrong. Tim Spector, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's a pleasure. Looking forward to it. So I want to start out by talking about how we know, or if we know, how many calories are in a particular food. Because, 
you know, a lot of times you hear people say, look, it's just really simple, burn more calories than you consume, and you won't have to worry about gaining weight. <laughs> Uh, but your book suggests that that's actually a lot more complicated than it sounds. So let's start out with, and these are, you know, in your book, it's a really graphic, interesting uh, description of this. How do we know what calories are in, our, are in our food? And how did that all start out in terms of calorie counting? Well, it, it goes back, you know, 100 or so years ago, where people just used to burn food and uh, work out the energy that it, it, it gave off and amount amount of uh, water that could heat up and it this became the unit of um energy that was in food and it was a very sort of crude system but amazingly it, it did work and i think the original one was you know burning some animals in 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 tubes and things like this in the in the old days um but what's strange is that we haven't really moved on in the last uh 100 years and We've kept this idea that it's a very precise measure that uh, is the best way of looking at food. And that that's really the sort of number one myth that uh, I think we need to dispel because we certainly can't measure it very accurately and you can't measure how much you put in your body because it's, uh, it's really tricky to do. And as you carry around scales with you all the time, you're a trained dietitian, but also you can't measure what comes out the other end, how much you burn, because that's even harder to measure. And we just make these guesses as as uh, anyone listening knows on their Fitbit or their Apple Watch, they get told, oh, you've done, you know, half an hour of walking, that's burnt off X calories. Well, that's that's based on some tiny experiments on a few number of people, and it may not apply to you at all. So most of us have got this balance wrong. And, this, and the idea that you know, there's 2,000 calories for women, 2,500 for men is based on really out of date science that really is not appropriate for most people. So that's the first thing. We really can't measure a calorie properly. And it, these averages don't mean anything for us. And so are very misleading. And the, the second thing is that all calories are supposed to be equal. And this is the basis of low calorie diets and uh, low calorie labels. And it's simply not true because we know that uh, if you give, and we've done these experiments uh, with the PREDICT study run by the company Zoe, that we give a thousand people identical muffins, uh, some people react their blood sugar will actually dip after a couple of hours. And those people that dip after eating the muffin actually eat 20% more food over the next 24 hours than people that don't. So eating the same thing can have very different results on you, not just on how you react to it, but also whether it's a fat or a carb, etc. So there's tons of reasons why really we should downgrade the calorie to a historical artifact that you know is of only very minor use when we pick our foods. And the only people that have benefited from the calorie recently are diet companies and the food manufacturers. And we all know which way that's gone recently. 
Yeah, I mean that's it's it's so interesting that this that this um, information that you're talking about sort of came across my desk now because I spent three months during the you know what are you, what are you going to do during a pandemic? Well, one thing that you're going to do is you're going to start counting calories because there's not a lot else to do. Um, and you know it was really easy to gain some weight in the beginning when you're can't leave your house and and uh, you have this like constant source of food in your pantry. And uh, the only fun thing that you can do during the day is order somebody to bring you food. Um, so, you know, a couple months uh, after that, I decided, well, I'm, well, this is also maybe a time where I can get really serious about calorie counting. And I so so I downloaded one of the sort of expensive, supposedly very well-rated apps that is supposed to give you very accurate calorie counts. And literally, I, I measured every ounce of food that I put into my mouth over the course of three months. I tracked every single calorie. And I thought that I was using a quantitative approach to sort of figure out what my habits were and get an accurate sense of how my food intake is affecting my weight. And, you know, reading your book and, and just thinking about sort of the logistics of how, first of all, they know how many calories are in the food that I'm tracking and then what effect it has on me was was really kind of validated the fact that, you know, I did this for so many months and so I spent so much time on it and did not lose a single pound. Yeah, well, you're not alone because uh, basically, you know, most people can lose some weight uh, short term, but, uh, you know, by restricting calories and, and generally more radically than you've done, but even then it bounces back anyway. And a lot of it is because the calorie is a really lousy indicator of of the sort of foods you should be eating it's a, and it disguises the poor quality of most of the food that is passed off as low calorie so that's you know to me the worst crime about uh, calories is it we've taken the whole complexity of food with its 30,000 chemicals in it and all its interactions with our you know our genes our microbes our metabolites and we've squashed all that into a single number and said, this is what uh, you should be eating. And and you're absolutely right. There's about a 20% plus or minus uh, on all these uh, estimates anyway. And if you think 20% is quite a lot in your calories, if you've got it wrong, and even the same food has very different, um, if the format of the food can give you a very different calorie count. So, you know, we're told if you take chickpeas, have a totally, you know, the same calories as hummus, but because they're ground up in hummus, they're actually liberated and will have a totally different effect on your body. And nuts are the same. You get 20, 30% difference depending on how the food is structured. So really, you know, it, it's been totally misleading to people and a real distraction against the ways we should be eating. And, you know, it's so, so, so this app also used a behavioral technique to label foods as as green, yellow or amber and and red, which you also talk about in your book about this this strategy. And so you you know, you can eat as many green foods as you want. You need to be careful with the yellow foods and and you should really eat the red foods only in moderation, not that you can't eat them at all. But it was really interesting because it lumped things like like I I stopped eating almond butter entirely because it was just blowing my red budget. And if I wanted to have a glass of wine at the end of the day, <laughs> like I couldn't do both. And yet, like, this could argue in terms of, of whether the, the actual labeling is correct. But there were plenty of foods in the yellow zone um, that I felt like, you know, really 
you, you could eat a lot of those. And um, anyway, it was just interesting how they kind of labeled this. And and so I wanted to, and, and I don't want to, you know, throw the app under the bus, but really talk about this strategy of color coding your food. Does it make it easier for people to make the right choices? But then what do you do with these red foods that presumably are very healthy, but also high in calories? Yeah, well, if you followed that, really, you'd never have something like extra virgin olive oil, which has, you know, 12% saturated fat in it, but it ignores all the other good fats in it and all the hundreds of polyphenols and other really good stuff in it. So it's dumbing down nutrition to ridiculous levels. You say, oh, well, we know that fat, you know, gram for gram has more calories in it than carbs. So therefore we penalize fats and therefore you should have, you know, carbohydrate diets, um, that are generally highly processed with artificial sweeteners and this kind of stuff. And it just, you know, I think that's just so old fashioned now and we've we've shown it doesn't work and really fancy apps don't make bad science into good science. And, you know, I'm nothing against traffic lights, but if I had a traffic light system, it would be, let's give it a junk food scale from, you know, good quality, natural whole foods to ultra processed foods on the, on the red. And, uh, that's the only scale I would uh, tell people about at the moment uh, before you get into personalization, which you know is is a whole other topic. Because there's some people that you know we know from our studies that will do very well on a, a high fat diet, and others will do very badly on a high fat diet. And it comes back to this: you know, if you treat everyone as identical clones, uh, you're going to be wrong. And that's what you know our studies of the last four years have have absolutely shown us: is that everybody is unique in their response to food, even identical twins. I would love to hear more about the PREDICT study. So can you tell us, sort of, give, give us the, lay the groundwork for that study, and then, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about it as, as it comes up. Uh, sure. Well, we published uh, the two papers in, uh, in this in Nature Medicine uh, in June and uh, in January, so people can read up more about it. But essentially, it was the biggest interventional nutrition study of its kind. We took a 1,100 people, including about 600 twins, and gave them uh, identical foods and looked at their their reactions to those foods in in a laboratory setting for a day and then at home for the next two weeks. We gave them glucose monitors. We gave them, uh, which gave continuous readouts for the two weeks. And we looked at their blood fats and we looked at their uh, gut microbes in great detail. And basically everyone... Reacted differently to the these muffins, uh, with there's an eightfold difference in your blood response, which uh, blew our minds because I, I didn't think it'd be anything like that. And identical twins often were no more similar than the unrelated people, showing that you know actually your genes weren't that important either. Which you know other a lot of other people have uh, have, have said otherwise. So that was fascinating that everyone was reacting differently, and we put all this information together. So that for any one individual, we using AI, uh, we could predict how they would respond to any other food with about 80% um, accuracy. And that's the basis now of a, a product that this company, Zoe, uh, has live in the US and is gaining traction. I think it really is the future of uh, personalized nutrition because it it's not just one, th- you know, it's putting a lot of these things together, the the, the sugar, the fats, the inflammation, the, the microbiome all together, which is what you want is a more holistic 
approach to food rather than just calories or fat counts or things like that. So that's really been an eye-opener for me personally to see this huge difference between people. I mean, it's so fascinating to me that you can have such different reactions and that it's not primarily genetic. Um, so like, let, let, so if it's not genetic, because that's really what the twins are showing, that, that maybe there's some component to it, but it's certainly not one of the major driving factors. The two other things that I can think of would be some kind of metabolism related to perhaps, you know, how much muscle your body has, or, you know, we can talk about what are the other factors that come into your sort of base metabolism rate. And then, you know, essentially your gut microbiome. Um, and and that probably differs on the basis of over time your experience. So I want to talk first about metabolism, and then we can get to the gut microbiome, um, unless you feel like those two things really can't be separated. No, it's easy to talk about them separately, although they are all connected. <laughs> okay. So yeah, let's talk about metabolism. So how do we, what, what are the factors that go into, uh, do we know, uh, essentially setting a person's metabolism? Well, we're learning, you know, every every month uh, something new, and we're having to unlearn lots of lots of facts. But it appears that the way the speed at which you absorb food uh, is quite important. So uh, your glucose and insulin responses to food are a very major player in this, and this is one of the things we we measured, and you can now measure with these continuous glucose monitors, which I think will be within five years, you know, available in every drugstore uh, so people to try. So the, the number of peaks you have after eating uh, carbohydrates and how long that peak lasts puts stress on your body so that long term, if you've got lots of these peaks, you'll, you get more inflammation and you're under more metabolic stress. So your metabolism is working less well. So that's one thing we've found. The other is that the same is true if your um, your blood fat levels go up six hours after eating. Fat is, is absorbed slower than sugar. But if you have too much fat floating around in your, in your blood system for too long, that again causes inflammation and messes up your metabolism. So they're the sort of uh, metabolic effects. And we, we think those affect how you lay down fat and how you uh, process your, your foods in general. So if you can optimize that part of uh, what's going on, long term, you, you, you'll, you'll make big progress. Um, and that's really quite new science. And now you can measure those uh, for yourself. And there's huge differences you know, between people and how they, their, their body metabolism reacts. So is that so, sorry, is that something that you can change? Like, let's say you find out that you, um, you, know, you have a lot of fat going around in your body, it's causing inflammation. Like if you eat less fat, will that will that change? Or is that just something that is just the way that your body metabolizes that food? No, all of these things are uh, modifiable. So um, by, obviously, if you don't eat fat at all, you won't get any fat response or you will get some, but it'd be minor. But you can just by changing from bad fats, you know, that you might, get in highly processed foods, uh, palm oils, etc., to olive oil, you can get a better response. But also, there's a link between the two systems. So what happens in your fat and what happens in your insulin is also important. But by changing from, say, eating the same amount of calories, but instead of as a refined, you know, snack food, uh, cookie, 
you end up eating the same calories as uh, something like lentils or some other plant, you won't get that same peak. And there's even difference, you know, for me, I notice differences in my breakfast between eating a muesli granola type breakfast with oat porridge or with obviously yogurt and fruit. And you can start to work out which of those ones suits your body better to have the, the least number of peaks. And that, that's essentially what we're, we're trying to do. So that, that's the metabolism part. And I mean, there are also factors that we haven't talked about, about time of eating, about um, how much sleep you got, whether you exercise before or after your meal, and what you actually ate the, the day before, which also influence your metabolism. So it's, it's really complicated. And then, of course, you've got the overarching influence of the gut microbes, which are, uh, as we know, crucial for all these processes. And if you've got healthy gut microbes, you can also reduce those sugar peaks and those fat peaks uh, and improve your metabolism just by feeding your microbes correctly. So the whole system is linked, but really complicated and really tricky for an individual, uh, you know, all of us to, to try and sort out without help. So let's talk a little bit about the gut microbiome and, you know, what we know. It seems like you know, this is something that sort of became much more uh, uh, well known over the last decade or so, maybe a little bit longer, but sort of more in the in the popular media over the last 10 years. Um, but then I feel like we kind of stagnated, like, okay, so we know we have all these gut bacteria, we know they affect the way that we um, metabolize food, we know that there are certain, you know, if you eat a lot of sugar, you're feeding, you know, a certain bad type of, of bacteria. But T tell us a little bit more about what the sort of state of the art of the knowledge now is in terms of, first of all, how the gut microbiome is is cultivated, I guess. Is that is that the right term for it? Grown? And two, how it affects, uh, you know, our metabolism. Yeah. So it, it's been, I think it's been main, mainstream, well, not mainstream, it's mainstream for five years and it's been around for about 10 years. And you're sort of right. I think we did hit a, a plateau a couple of years ago because the sequencing of the microbiome was giving us results which were fairly crude. And so our ability to link the uh, uh, hundreds of different species we found with that method with food was rather limited. And we didn't realize also how complicated it was and quite how unique everyone was, how different. You know, it's very different to the our own genetics where we you know, we share 99.7% of our genes with each other, but we only share 30%, 20% of our microbes. So that uniqueness makes it really tough to start making these associations between disease or with food. And I think we had a, a paper in Nature in, um, in January, which for the first time linked specific uh, microbes 30 microbes that are good and bad with foods that uh, increased or decreased their amounts in, in, in humans with health outcomes. And we did that uh, in these thousand uh, individuals and twins, but also 
managed to replicate it in, in tens of thousands of other samples around the world. So that was only possible because of the new uh, genetic sequencing of the microbes, which gives you the not only the species, but the, the strain uh, of them, because even at the strain level, they can produce different chemicals which have different functions. So I think that's every time we, we make a small step forward, we realize it's more complicated uh, and they actually the microbes are even more closely involved in our in our bodies than we thought. So I think that's the reason. But I think we're we now have all that technology and the price has come down of this uh, detailed it's called metagenomic sequencing to do you know hundreds of thousands of people and really be able to give precise uh, links between specific microbes and specific foods. But just to give you an example. You know, I had mine done in this method and found I was carrying this parasite around called blastocystis that uh, actually one in three uh, Americans carry. And uh, if you have this parasite, you're actually more likely to, to be lighter and have less visceral abdominal fat. So it seems to be helpful for our metabolism in ways we really wouldn't have dreamt of. Uh, no one would in their right mind said, oh, I'd love to have a parasite inside me so these are sort of the, some of the insights that we're discovering but it's still the early it's the dawn of this um, speciality really as we try and uncover the links between the good microbes and which which are the best foods we can give you know to improve them yeah so this has also kind of launched this industry of probiotics that you can take and they can be very expensive. And, you know, I have an uncle who's a gastroenterologist and he just laughs at the idea that you can take a pill that will, you know, essentially repopulate your gut, um, given just the sheer numbers involved. He's like, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a drop in the ocean. Um, but I wonder if you can tell us whether, you know, there, wh whether that is a viable way of, of, uh, repopulating and are there particular, things that we should look for if we're if we're interested in some kinds of supplements um, in terms of the, the, the labeling? Yes. Well, uh, your uncle, like most do doctors, are fairly skeptical uh, about probiotics. And th there's some reason for that. But in, in general, most of the studies do show that in the trials of probiotics, there is some beneficial effect across, I'd say, the majority of diseases they've tested them in. Now, what isn't clear is which particular brand or species or probiotic works and which don't. We just know in general they work for uh, most people, but not everybody. And this is because I think they're not tailored for us. They're not personalized. And we're all, our baseline microbes are all so different that many of us might just reject whatever's in that bottle and it's not going to work. But, you know, I think there are encouraging studies like probiotics in depression probably work as well as, you know, antidepressants. And I think it is going to get better. But if anyone taking a probiotic, it's a bit of a gamble about which one you pick. You really don't know. And so you may have to try five together or, you know, go with expensive versions where they have lots of them. But I much prefer having my probiotics as food. And that's, you know, there's plenty of fermented foods like uh, yogurts, kombucha, kefir that have, you know, 30 types of microbe in them naturally. And you're much more likely to get a benefit from those, I feel, than um, taking these, these particular 
capsules unless you've got some particular medical problem uh, that, that can help. So I think it's still evolving, but uh, I think, and it's had a bad press because I think it was oversold about 10 years ago. But I think, you know, I'm optimistic it's going to keep growing and we're going to start being able to give personalized advice to people in the future. So um, that's it's a pretty bold claim to say that probiotics could be as effective as antidepressants in treating depression. And I, I know that there are sort of serotonin receptors in the gut that people point to as one of the mechanisms by which this happens, since, you know, a lot of the antidepressants out there are work on the serotonin system. And I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit more and maybe point us to any studies that show that that might be that that's true. Well, there are a number of, of trials of human trials, randomized trials of probiotics in anxiety and depression that uh, when you meta-analyze them do show a, a benefit that is of a similar size to uh, those of antidepressants. And that's, you've got to remember that antidepressants actually don't work in many people and there's a huge variable response to them. So it's not like they're this uh, holy grail that, you know, often the placebo is nearly as good as the um actual antidepressant. So the reason they they work um, is still unclear. We, we are focusing on the serotonin pathway because we know that that's how uh, antidepressants work and microbes actually uh, produce our, our serotonin uh, because 90% of it is produced by our microbes rather than our body. So we have a sort of clear mechanism in our heads of how it might work but it's quite possible they work in other ways as well, just by building up our other microbes that we don't talk about and improving our gut health. Because other, other studies have shown that just switching people from an average uh, Australian or a US diet to uh, a Mediterranean diet full of whole foods without processed foods can have similar results and uh, benefits. So I think we have to keep an open mind on exactly how they work. But there's every reason to think that the more microbes you've got, the more helpful chemicals they can produce and uh, reverse some of the, the effects of uh, something like depression. I'm glad to hear that, um, that, there, that there's a future looking to it. One, one thing that I, st- and you can correct me if this is not true anymore, but certainly in the last couple of years, my husband and I have both tried to get our gut microbiome sequenced. You know, we, we sort of, uh, bought packages from the companies that were supposedly doing this well. Um, and in both cases, uh, you know, we had pretty, you know, pretty blah experiences. And in my husband's case, it really didn't seem to, um, the, the information wasn't really comprehensive. And in my case, I sent out samples and just never heard back. <laughs> so I don't know if I broke the machine or what. Um, but I wonder if you can point us to, you know, a better way of doing this. Is there is there a good way now that's pretty reliable where people can get their um, gut microbiome sequenced and that the information is actually useful or are we just not there yet? Well, I think people, if you, if you want some in-depth information, I think you have to get it properly metagenome sequenced, and that. So most of the start, most of the companies have been doing what's called 16S sequencing, which is just looking at one gene, and that just gives you a real snapshot. And you know they've not been very good or very helpful in terms of practical uh, advice, other than saying you've got you know a good or a lousy uh, microbiome, 
And so I would advise people to spend a little bit more to get metagenome sequencing done. And there are a few companies now offering this um, in the US. I've been working with the American Gut Project, uh, which was a a not-for-profit based out of uh, San Diego. And that's been stopped because of COVID, but uh, we're hoping to restart that in um, uh, in a few months. So look out for that. But if you wanted to do something now, then you could go with the Join Zoe program because you will get your, as part of your personalized nutrition testing, you'd also get your microbiome tested and at, for really in-depth sequencing. And because we compare it to the other thousands of uh, people we've got, uh, you will get good recommendations based on that. So that's what I, I would suggest at the moment, those those two approaches, one from uh, American Gut uh, in a few months' time, or if you want to do it now, from joinzoe.com uh, as part of this personalized medicine package. I want to talk about um, Zoe and, and uh, you know, the way AI can maybe help us navigate the complexity of our relationship with nutrition metabolism. But before we get there, I just had one kind of probably very stupid question, but um, it's something that I've always thought maybe would just be an easy solution. And maybe that's just kind of, you know, spending too much time living in the US looking for easy fixes. But um, I, I've just wondered, like, why are why don't we just if we know what the good bacteria are in our guts that we want like why don't we just have a plan where okay so for 2 weeks you just take a bunch of really strong antibiotics that destroy everything there is in there and then you repopulate it with the good bacteria whether that's through like you know fecal transplants or i don't know what what <laughs> maybe is a more palatable way of thinking about this but is that something especially because you know we know that this can have really lifelong consequences for people is that a possibility in the future or is just that not a good idea it's definitely a possibility and it's i mean you mentioned fecal transplants poo transplants and you know thousands of people have these uh, every week in the US and it's the number one treatment for uh, Clostridium difficile infection which you get actually as usually a result of overusing antibiotics so you can repopulate a really sick uh, gut microbes by putting in healthy ones and we know from animal experiments as well that works so if you're really sick, it works, okay? Um, and that's a 90% cure rate. But if you're not really sick, your own microbes, even after antibiotics, there's still enough of them fighting, will tend to fight off the new guys, and the, and the new guys often don't uh, aren't able to settle and take over. So that's the current um, state of play, that fecal transplant has only been shown to be effective in a, in a in a few conditions with with decent evidence. The other one is uh, ulcerative colitis, where you get a lot of inflammation in the, in the bowel, and it works pretty well there, but it has been disappointing in a lot of other conditions. So I think, again, we're looking for the magic bullet, uh, not realizing how complicated it is. You know, it's a bit like being an environmentalist and saying, okay, we're just going to take areas of Ohio and make it like the Amazon. You know, you can't just suddenly take out wheat fields and, and put something new in there and it's going to instantly take. So I think we, we need a much more measured approach to it and realize that 
everyone has their own unique environment anyway, even if it's sick, it might need more personalized um, way of dealing with it rather than, you know, making the same mistake we've been making with nutrition about one size fitting all. So if you're really sick, it works. But uh, if you're a little bit, it seems it's, it's going to be a tougher to, to do that. But I think the way to deal with it is to actually improve generally the gut microbiome of every, of, in a general way, increase the, the, the diversity of the species. And once you've done that, then you can start to add in maybe uh, probiotic supplements, et cetera, to, to help out. But uh, I think diet is probably the main way rather than wonder drugs at the moment. So I, I want to let our listeners know that um, Tim Spector's book, Spoon Fed, Why Almost Everything You've Been Told About Food Is Wrong, is available at booksellers everywhere now. And it's just, you know, it's it's a basically a list of myths that he <laughs> calls out um, and provides the scientific explanation for why they're, they're myths. Um, so I want to end with a conversation about the future and how artificial intelligence can help us navigate these complex waters and how your company, Zoe, is designed to do just that. Yeah, I think we're, we're now in a very exciting age because, you know, we've discovered the microbiome. We can now measure it with sequencing. And in the future, that's going to get cheaper and cheaper, like, you know, taking our blood pressure every three months. We've now got ways of measuring in real time what's happening when we eat foods with these continuous glucose monitors, and we've got the, the AI, AI science and big data computing, which can put it all together. And this really is the, the age of personalization. And the idea now that you know we've taken the results of all these trials and made a home kit that we're giving out to thousands of, of people in the US who are returning their data to us, being part of this big research experiment and receiving individual feedback so that um, after they've done their two weeks, they they basically get a list of uh, foods on the app that gives them a personalized score about um, how often we reckon, you know, they should be eating them with nothing being banned and nothing being uh, said is too high in calories or uh, too high in fats. So I think that is the future that People will use these uh, when they go shopping or when they're eating or when they're planning their, their meals. And without restricting what you're eating, uh, we'll, we'll be able to have a much better idea of what that food is likely to be doing to our own bodies and make appropriate choices. Make the choice between a banana and an apple. Make choices between your uh, a yogurt in the morning or a, um, a bit of muesli. And without restricting our, our choices of foods because we still also have to think holistically and absolutely not restrict uh, food choice. We want to expand it, get people to try new things because the more diversity uh, we get people to eat with, more plants people eat, the, the healthier their gut microbes will be. And that feeds into the system to, to keep your metabolism healthy. So I think it's a very exciting time. And I think in the future, everyone is going to be monitoring their blood sugar. Everyone's going to be monitoring their, their gut microbes. And they'll probably be shopping you know, with these apps that uh, will, will give them an, an aid and they'll start to trust it. Uh, they'll start to trust these scores much more than they will food labels made by you know, greedy food companies that uh, just want to sell you more rubbish to eat. So how can people join Zoe? <laughs> 
it looks like when I go to the website that you're full and there's a wait list. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, there has been a lot of demand recently, but we are scaling up as fast as we can. So uh, go to the website, joinzoe.com and uh, sign up on the wait list. And uh, it shouldn't be too long before we can get you can get shipped a, a kit if you want to discover, you know, uh, what's best for your own body. And uh, there's plenty of information on that website as well about this whole concept of personalized nutrition. And obviously, um, uh, there's plenty about it in my, in, my, in the book Spoonfed. And people can also follow me on, on Twitter or Instagram, tim.spectre, uh, to learn more about what we're doing. But I want everyone to really embrace the idea of experimenting with their own bodies and see this as an exciting journey rather than something that's miserable and like, you know, the dreadful story you told of uh, calorie restricting during lockdown. I think you can really... Uh, have a really fun time looking after your microbes and looking after your own health. Yeah, and I have to say it was it wasn't all bad. It did it did show me that some of the decisions I was making were, you know, were impeding my progress in ways that I wasn't quite aware. And so it did it did shift my decision making and I feel like now maybe I'm ready for something that's a little bit more backed by science, a little bit more specific. Um so, you know, it wasn't all bad. Good. Glad you're still optimistic. That's great. <laughs> Thanks Tim for being on Inquiring Minds. It's been my pleasure. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Charles Blyle, and Dale Lemaster. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and I'll see you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.